I remember like when I was first uh, learning Roman history, like I was waiting for like to hit like the golden age and what that really was supposed to look like. And it's like, all right, so we're sort of getting there, but it still is like kind of backwards and there's still these kinds of wars and you're just waiting for that kind of, you know, peace. But the time you get to the peace, you, you already have the Roman Empire and you have like essentially, you know, the democracy is a more or less kind of a, you know, a, a figurehead. It's very odd where you never really yeah. reach the time where, oh, this is what they meant by the golden age. And it's not what we would consider to be a golden age. You know well, what I mean? Well, yeah, even the, even the democracy was not a democracy. It yeah, was of course. an oligarchy. It was, yeah, yeah, you, you keep reading, you keep trying to, you keep waiting to get to the thing that everybody just off uh, about like oh my god ancient fucking roll oh my god and like you never actually hit it you know you never actually find that thing that everybody's so into hi everyone welcome to artifact number 57 for the audio listeners you are missing actually a pretty historic set of images on your screen right now we have keith jackowitz and laura woods uh together on the first show together with me at any rate and we're all wearing actually red shirts um well i'm wearing red i had to turn up the light so it doesn't look orange um i was wearing this like disgusting white t-shirt and i just decided you know what if laura shows up on the call and she's like dressed nicely i'm gonna have to change my shirt a little bit so we're kind of matching and interestingly enough i don't know if it's because it's the cover of antony and cleopatra which is by the way what we're discussing here but i've always associated the color red with this play um, I first read it maybe about 15 years ago. I, I mentioned how W.H. Uh, Auden, he had this collection of, I guess, like, you know, selected, uh, not his selected poems, but poetry that he would curate. And for whatever reason, it intrigued me that he, of all of Shakespeare's plays, he decided to include Antony and Cleopatra as the thing for people to read. And I'm guessing now that after having read it, uh, I can sort of see why it's very underappreciated. Um, it's very like underperformed. In fact, when I was looking for uh, just performances of the play, the only thing I found was a 1974 Patrick Stewart version, which has some interesting details just in, in, in as much as it cuts certain things and it leaves certain things. Some of those cuts made sense. Uh, other ones perhaps didn't, but we could talk about uh, all of that. So uh, maybe you could just like jump into your reactions to this play um the you know the fact that it does seem to be underappreciated what were your responses um so yeah that was it was actually was my first time reading it well i've read it like a couple times to prepare for this now and yeah i think like i was just saying like i now i'm not going to claim to be a massive shakespeare buff i still haven't read all of his plays i've read most of the tragedies anyways and like i was actually very probably because this is so underrated it's not when you tend to see you tend to see the same five or so being mentioned like Othello, Hamlet, King Lear, um, you know a couple of others and it's like the, the Tempest and like this isn't one you kind of see mentioned up there quite as much and I do think it's a lot I do think it's underrated I think it's a lot um, tighter in some ways despite it's like I'd say fairly lengthy but the pacing, like compared to like some of Shakespeare's other plays, like it's a lot tighter in terms of the pacing. It kind of breezes by. There's like, it, it's kind of interesting. One of the like things I read when I was doing a little bit of background reading was somebody, um, I seen some scholar pointing out that there's a lot of these, once you get into the third act or so, there's a lot of these like short little scenes to kind of like set the scene and progress it. And it's almost um, kind of like 
you you could see in terms of like a TV show or a fil- or a film that kind of like way of like quick cutting between scenes more so than what might have been typical in a lot of plays. And I do think there's something too that maybe it was just a little um, before its time in terms of like those kind of things. But yeah, it's um, I yeah I, I did it was quite like an interesting experience. I'd say it's def- I definitely put it up there as one of like the better Shakespeare plays I've read um, overall. In terms of also, I think, especially uh, for the size, right? Because I don't think it's longer than King Lear, for instance, but King no. Lear has a lot of uh, excess anyway. Yeah, where- it's a lot. It, it, I think one of the things is it doesn't really have any of these like bullshit kind of B plots going on. That mm-hmm. like <laughs> a lot mm-hmm. of like Shakespeare's plays, I feel like that takes up a lot of space and like you just like a lot of the time his side characters are not especially interesting or they're just there for like bad comic relief or whatever but like this play actually doesn't really have much of that like even when there's like some relatively short scenes to set like some of the political action it's like relatively tight there's not it's it's you know it kind of breezes by you could easily like trim it if you wanted to as a director i'd imagine but also like it just kind of clips by at a decent pace there's also like a fair amount there that like an, an actor I'd imagine could do with that as well in terms of the side characters they're not quite as cardboard cut out there's like some interesting little details I can imagine you could exploit here and there mm-hmm. that not all of his plays have because like even in yeah like King Lear or even Hamlet you have uh, like um fuck I, I'm trying to remember what's what's like the, his two friends that come and you have like all these scenes and his two friends that come, or, or like you always have these like characters that are just so like plot devices or like bad comic relief or just there, you know, to kind of have like the, the representation of the plebs or the peasants, but they're not especially like, you know, given a lot of dignity compared to the main ones. Whereas like I found, found even in this, a lot of the side characters are given a little more depth than in most of Shakespeare's plays. Like you have like a number of like the soldiers and courtiers and that, that are, are kind of interesting in their own right. So yeah, and and like in terms of those a uh, little uh, uh, details from side characters, um, to the extent that it has humor, it's much more kind of like you know to get back to Hamlet. There's a kind of like a dark humor that emerges. Um, yeah, you know, getting to a nunnery, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, and here too, like there's a lot of like sexual innuendo. Yeah, that's brought like when I was you know. There's like, you know, you can make criticisms of the Patrick Stewart uh, uh, version of this, but at the same time, like they they do capture some of that innuendo quite a bit. Um, and, you know, there's always like a grimness and a darkness to it, especially since, and uh, maybe we could like discuss this in a bit, but how, you know, we modern readers, we perceiving the play versus how uh, people time. in Shakespeare's time or even like Shakespeare's intentions versus what the final effect is because- yeah. Um, yeah, there, there, there's a, a transformations. Like if you have great art that tend to happen, even if it's like totally outside the hands of Shakespeare, even if it's like outside of his intentions, still like it, it, it um, the fact that the changes occur, I think speak to the quality of the work. There's like a kind of meta aspect that comes, that comes up more and more as the play goes on where like mm-hmm. there's this consciousness, um, especially on Cleopatra's part of like how they're going to be viewed. You have this, like she gives her, kind of soliloquy about like they're like how you know she like imagining this like a shitty play being performed and mocking her and Mark Antony and all this and um like you kind of have that like aspect where like you'll have a few servants in the background watching it and they'd be like oh like there's there's one point and I don't have the quote there but it's to the effect of like it's great to be able to just watch this not take any part in it and kind of just stand there mocking it. so there is this kind of like meta aspect that's like not hammered in too much but it just kind of comes out here and there and it's just quite it's actually it's quite nicely done 
in terms of my own relationship to the play, I first read it maybe twelve or thirteen years ago. I, I think I talked about this when we read the Tempest, or when we talked about the Tempest. But I, when I was in college, I was studying theater, and I just at one point decided to buckle down, and I spent like three or four weeks just reading Shakespeare constantly, just going through the entire collected works, and just so I could say that I had done it and that I was at least a little bit familiar with everything. And I remember at the time, this was an, especially when you read everything that he wrote and you read this one, it really does stand out because A, there are just so many scenes in this compared to a, a lot of his other plays. I mean, it really does mm -hmm. jump around quite a bit. So there is a, 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 like Laura said, a briskness to the pacing that you don't get in a lot of his other plays. And also it's a lot more... Um, it's it, it, it in some ways it's like his least self-conventional play or at least one of his mo like least self-conventional play because it doesn't really have a traditional Shakespearean villain, you know, someone that is like mm -hmm. on the sidelines plotting, talking to the audience, explaining his machinations. It, 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 the antagonist is, I, I, I guess you could say Octavius, but he's not really shown as being an especially bad or loathsome kind of guy. I mean, it, he's just one of the people that is vying for power and his claim is not necessarily worse than Mark Antony's. And, you know, you're, you're watching most of this from Antony and Cleopatra's perspective. And so I guess you're ostensibly on their side, but they're not shown as being especially more virtuous than the people that they are tangling with. So, so if there's a villain here, it's uh, Mark Antony's midlife crisis. Uh, yeah, I mean, the closest, I guess, is like the, the Lepidus character because he's kind of a flatterer, you know, he's trying mm. to keep both of these people in the position that he wants them in in order to preserve his own power, but he dies off or, or he goes away off screen. So he doesn't even really get much of a traditional denouement to him. Um, but also, I, I, I speaking as someone who has like, performed in Shakespeare plays in the past, I remember thinking that this would be a challenging play to do for a, a modern, you know, theater troupe or whatever, because it really does jump around so much. And unless you wanted to, I mean, in Shakespeare's time, you probably could just have like four sets, like here's Rome, here's you know cleopatra's palace in egypt here's a third place here's a fourth place and just you know very minimal set dressing and more, maybe more like elaborate costumes that they would just have in stock because they were doing plays all the time where it takes place in egypt takes place in rome or whatever but to to do this in a way that a modern audience could really follow because it is quite heavy with a lot of the classical illusions that it makes both in terms of the actual history that it's dealing with as well as references to epic poetry of the time i mean you'll read people talk about how there's significant uh, recourse to the aeneid in this play and you know in order to get people to basically kind of follow what shakespeare was doing here i think you'd have to do pretty like elaborate set design and costuming and things like that so that might explain why it's not done as often uh, but it really does stand out as a, a very interesting and, and quite good piece of, of his corpus uh, on, on balance. One thing that I noticed, um, well, well, first of all, like uh, to your point about the, the, the lack of a true villain, uh, what you said about that after, which was uh, 
Well, you know, we kind of see this from the perspective mostly uh, of Antony and Cleopatra. So we do kind of root for them. Whereas, uh, like, if you were just sort of like, you know, reading Julius Caesar first, right? Uh, Antony is, is definitely more uh, of a villain there. Um, you know, his like manipulations and whatnot. So here you're presented somebody that you, I'm not sure if the word is like you, you root for him because he definitely does have these like very negative qualities right like uh, uh octavius caesar later augustus uh, is uh, accusing him essentially of being kind of like you know too soft and effeminate and you know too interested in uh the machinations of of egypt right like historically there was the, the whole big uh, blow up over the uh alexandrian uh donations which is basically like you know octavius is uh, reading out uh, the will of uh antony or maybe it wasn't a will it was maybe some proclamation where you know he's uh, ready to leave um, you know, his own property uh, uh, in Rome and also these like new conquests to the children that he has with Cleopatra. He had like, I think, three kids with her. But um, still, like there, there is this kind of odd thing where you do stay in his side a little bit, even though outside of like this, you know, love that they have uh, towards one another, which maybe you could identify with a little bit, but it's also not, it's not the kind of love that anybody would associate really, you know, if you're like an adult, I guess, you probably wouldn't associate it with something too positive, right? I mean, you're sort of like told to, like how to think about it, you know, from the very beginning, like the, the opening is essentially, you know, um, uh, like Antony's people uh, saying that this is a, a, unacceptable behavior, right? So Philo says, nay, but this dotage of our generals overflows the measure those his goodly eyes that over the files and musters of the war have glowed like plant plated mars now bend now turn the office and devotion of their view upon a tawny front right tawny being like uh, the description of cleopatra which is another odd little thing i mean i think it was even well known during the time of shakespeare that cleopatra she was not black she was not african right her descent specifically was uh macedonian um, and, you know, people would sort of, uh, uh ha they would have that knowledge, but still there's a lot of like this sort of, uh, Orientalist playing around, which is kind of necessary. Like if you think about how we set up, you know, uh, the conflicts and what Egypt might represent, what, uh, Rome might re represent, right. And he continues his captain's heart, which in the scuffles of great flights hath burst the buckles on his breast, renegs all temper and has become the bellows and the fan to cool a gypsy's lust right and the word gypsy also has like some origin i believe uh, with uh, egyptian this idea that again like th this is somebody that's very different very uh, other um so like what 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 do you what do you think about this whole uh, uh idea that you know you're not really made to uh really sympathize with antony or even like root for him in a classical way but still you sort of do, and yet uh, still, like intellectually, it's you know, it's this like conflict, like between the emotion and the intellect in 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 the in the whole play, which is this idea that you know what Anthony is doing, whether he gets like the second wind or the new courage or whatnot, all that is based not on reason; it's just based on some sort of like you know emotional investment that he has um, that will really damage him. And I want to get into some of those passages later that really develop that, which is um, you know, like well, one, another good thing about the play is just how you could like skip to like any page and you're probably going to find a ton of like really nice lines, very nice descriptions. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's really kind of like overfilled with that. So yeah. I, I don't even know what I'm asking now. Like I guess guys well, respond it, it, or I mean, say something it's, else. I it, It's historically interesting because 
I, I mean, we now know from cognitive psychology research that racial recognition is something that emerges at like a very young age in people. You know, I think even infants as young as like one to two months, they can recognize people that they share like a racial grouping with preferentially versus somebody that they don't. But at the same time, like race as we understand it today is something that was like really kind of fine, you know, it, it was being actively constructed at the time that Shakespeare wrote this play. So it, 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 it is in some ways like Shakespeare grappling with something that is like starting to emerge or, or starting to crystallize and, and and really harden in in his society. And so it's it, 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 I mean, it's interesting to see that it was already at a point in this play where it could uh you know be utilized in this way but it wasn't you know it's sort of ambi it's ambiguous and and soft it's not like this hard I mean, thing like this african wench that has uh you know tempted this the, the this white man away from the glory that was due him or something like that it, it, it's sort of this uh is a abused term nowadays but this sort of like liminal space that they both kind of step across you know, you know, in the, the the both of them so uh but in terms of the the the, the lines what i wanted to say was the interesting thing about this play the, the you know is that there's really not a great soliloquy that you, you're like something that stands out as like oh you could just like break this out and it's a good poem on its own you know i mean i'm not saying that there are sec there are segments but there's nothing like to be or not to be or tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow from Macbeth or things like that that it, it, it's the the line the the good and memorable lines and twists and things like that are more evenly dispersed across the play instead of sort of concentrated in one big speech uh, either to a character or, or to the audience yeah I think regarding the racial thing I think it's like you know they don't at his time like, they wouldn't have had that understanding but like i mean there was still with regard to like the british like you know colonial interests and stuff like that mm -hmm. there would have been this like very much like an understanding of how to other a group that you wanted to place beneath you or to kind of mm -hmm. like der derogate in some way so it's like which is kind of like it's a separate a bit of a, it's a tribalism but it's a bit of a separate thing from like what mod like nowadays gets discussed in terms of race especially in a quite americanized lens on things so like um you know like it, it's it's very much like it's a thing they can just like use and weaponize to other it because it's sort of like well you know they look down on it's it's like you already have this trace of orientalizing and stuff that are kind of like separate really from whether or not you know you do have these references to you know her tawny skin or whatever but that's kind of just like here or there and that could just well refer to like you know a suntan or something I, I think there's some like reference like cleopatra makes in it or something to herself in that regard um but it's more so it's it's quite reminiscent of like oriental like lizing attitude in terms of like egypt is like this decadent sensual kind of thing where they all just sit around like drinking and having feasts and having sex and enjoying themselves and then rome is very martial and straight to the point and you know you go to the roman scenes uh, where like they're just kind of discussing this politics and they're very straightforward there's this, this tension this briskness and then you go and then like straight after especially in the first couple of acts there'll be a scene where you're going back to Cleopatra and she's just there like bantering with her like her her handmaidens and her eunuchs and kind of like it's all very casual and I think that goes back to what Alex was saying about how you know intellectually like you don't really 
want to sympathize with a lot of the decisions that like Mark Antony or even that Cleopatra makes. You can go like they 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 fuck up in a lot of ways. But I think a lot of the reason why you might sort of enjoy watching them a bit more or appreciate a bit more is because like when you see the way Egypt is represented, it's just a lot more fun. And I imagine there's a lot that like a director could do to play with that in terms of scene set, like the, in terms of the scenery, in terms of lighting, in terms of stuff like that, to present this kind of very soft, lush, sensual world that's kind of been placed on offer. And then even when you have, you know, in the Roman scenes, when you have Egypt being mentioned, it's always presented in this way. Like you have, um, I can't, it's in one of the like scenes there where you have um, one of the soldiers in a barbus talking and it's like, you know, he'll talk in prose when it's just these functional things. And then he goes into probably one of the more famous kind of like speeches, although like I'd agree it's not on the level of like any of the great soliloquies in the other play. The one where he's talking about when Cleopatra, when Mark Antony first came to Egypt and saw Cleopatra on the barge and you have this like very lush description that's like, that that's just a huge contrast to the earlier, more prosaic and literally written in prose kind of proclamations that are made earlier in that scene. So you kind of have a lot of these devices being very obviously used that are just, yeah, they're just more, it, it just all presents, this is fun, this is enjoyable, this is sensual, this is, you know, enjoyment compared to plain and brisk and martial and practical and we do what we have to do, Roman. Like, it's kind of hard not to root for them a little bit when they're just like in this little fantasy world and then you have, you know, Caesar coming in and effectively ruining that with real world concerns. So, yeah, I think that's probably a lot of why you do end up rooting for them a little bit, despite them both being incredibly flawed characters and people. Well, they're especially for an audience. I mean, part of like elite duty in Shakespeare, for lack of a better term, is a certain uh, virtuousness and forbearance that you have to cultivate that mm. sort of separates you from the average person. It's the idea you know, that so, you know you have all these perks, but you have a responsibility then as a result of them. Yeah, which, I think at one point they, they they're describing like a party that they had, and somebody said, "I heard you guys roasted uh, eight boars." for a party of 12 people, people yeah. which I thought was so funny. It's like, and he was like, no, it was actually, and then he replies, like, no, it was actually no, even it was crazier actually than more that. that. You heard it wrong. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. very, yeah. yeah, and it's just kind of, yeah, it's kind of, you have that whole thing and then there's a lot done too with like, so it's like to that exotifying kind of thing, but you can't help but, you know, it's at the same time it's not presented negatively for all that like the car some of the characters like caesar views it negatively many of the like roman soldiers view it negatively but like in terms of the way it's being framed in the narrative it's not it's really not being presented in a negative light at all you can very much see the appeal yeah mm -hmm. and well also i mean you have to remember I, I, shakespeare is typically dated as being like a part of renaissance writing or whatever and obviously that was sort of uh that, that that's both a uh post facto term applied by historian like cultural historians although it was a little bit self-conscious with like petrarch you know sort of understanding himself as being part of a a new era that's emerging from the dark ages or whatever but mm -hmm. i mean to the extent that there's like uh, a founding moment of the renaissance or whatever it, it's often uh described in terms of the fall of constantinople to the uh, uh to the house of islam in the 1400s and that's when you get this uh like exodus of christians west as well as a lot of the roman and greek materials that were still central to uh 
uh, uh, what, what, East, like Eastern Roman Empire culture, uh, making their way back over to Europe and this renewed scholarly and elite interest in the, in that, in those kinds of works. And so, and, and about 150 years later, you get Edward Gibbon writing the fall of the Roman or the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And he doesn't really take any interest in the Eastern Roman Empire at all because he sees it as this like effeminate Asiatic decadent sort of like mm -hmm. fallen version of Rome doesn't even speak Latin you know and, and I do think that that was I mean that, that that was his own choice not to deal with that but this this perspective of Rome as having fallen because it was uh, getting too interested in these sort of like decadent uh, Eastern lifeways and luxuries is something that had been in Europe for a long time. So when you're suddenly, you know, dealing with this uh, newly revitalized interest in classical uh, architecture and literature and things like that, I mean, you can sort of I mean, you can see Shakespeare looking at this as like sort of the uh, 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 like a microcosm of that, you know, like the the uh, on the one hand, you know, these are luxuries that anybody could be tempted by, you know, but um, look, look at what happens when you uh, give yourself over to them, you know, look at the. Mm -hmm. Look at the outcome. You you are putting yourself on the wrong side of fortune because fortune favors the, uh, like the the stern and and somewhat uh, less passionate uh, man that is willing to do what needs to be done. You know, and and that uh, racial uh, element that I alluded to before to build on what you're just saying, uh, I'm not sure how well known this would have been in Shakespeare's Shakespeare's time, but definitely during you know the time of Rome there was. Uh, a lot of kind of like you know what we would expect uh uh you know similar to today like conflicts like between the native populations and migrants and for a while like there was a lot of like uh nationalistic sort of you know jingoistic uh rhetoric coming out of rome i remember like one time like there was this i forget who wrote this but there was one roman author that i was reading uh in college because one of my uh, majors in college was classics and I remember uh, it was it was very funny because he said something like, you know, like the, the, these Greeks, right? They're capable of absolutely anything. And we're talking about, you know, Greece uh, from, you know, the, the, the uh, Alexandrian Greece, right? Like um, the, the whole kind of like after, um, you know, like uh, after the time of, uh, uh, you know, Pericles, you know, after the time of Socrates, we're now, you know, uh, well, like aged into the time of Hellenistic uh, sort of Greece. And th this is the groups that they were looking at. They would say stuff like, you know, these Greeks are capable of anything. And if you start shivering in front of them, they'll start shivering too. If you start, if you start saying that you're hot, uh, watch them break out in a sweat. They could learn any language. They could do anything. Give them a few years. They'll come down to you and pick you up in a spaceship. I don't know what Latin term they translated uh, for spaceship, but that's just kind of like the gist of the translation. And a lot of that was directed towards like, you know, even like, you know, what we would consider, you know, to us, like, it's like, oh, this is Western culture. But at the time, you know, Alexander the Great was considered this, you know, Northern Greek, right? This like, you know, Macedonian type, the Tawny type, the 
um, the, the one that's not like part of like mainstream Greek culture. And, you know, he tries to acculturate himself with all the tutors and whatnot. And, you know, this is, this is partly, you know, like some of the uh, conflict, right. That's, that, that's also being, you know, aped, uh, and replicated in this play. Right. It, it wouldn't surprise, like if I'm like reading some of the, uh, Roman propaganda at the time, you know, like, like during the time of, uh, you know, these, uh, civil wars in, in Rome, like between whether it's like Antony or whether it's Caesar, or like whoever, there's actually like a lot of like mutual propaganda coming out and they're all, you know, arguing from the direction of, you know, like what is best for Rome? You know, there was all this like stuff about the reason why we're having civil wars is there's this breakdown of morality. Right, everybody's always talking about a breakdown of morality, and this is why you know the Romans we have... were always on that shit, man. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, yeah. like, like you can read Romans from like 400 BC that are concerned about like degeneracy and decline of mm -hmm. virtue and and morality, and it's like a running theme, basically until there's not any more Romans, it just goes yeah. on and on and on. And I remember like, but if you're like a modern reader looking through all this, I remember like when I was first uh, learning Roman history, like I was waiting for like to hit like the golden age and what that really was supposed to look like. Okay, well, finally, you know, plebeians are able to be, you know, part of the political equation. And we have, I think, the first consul uh, from the plebeians sometime in maybe the 200s or the 300s uh, uh, BCE. And it's like, all right, so we're sort of getting there. But it still is like kind of backwards and there's still these kinds of wars and you're just waiting for that kind of, you know, peace. But the time you get to the peace, you, you already have the Roman empire and you have like essentially, you know, the democracy is a more or less kind of a, you know, a, a figurehead, right? The Senate is, um, I don't know all the specifics, but uh, the Senate was just kind of like almost a perfunctory sort of thing at that time. So it's very odd where you never really yeah. reach the time where, you know, like, oh, this is what they meant by the golden age. And it's not what we would consider to be a golden age. You know well, what I mean? Well, yeah, even the, even the democracy was not a democracy. It yeah, was of course. an oligarchy. It was, yeah, yeah, you, you, know, you keep reading, you keep trying, you, 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 you know? keep waiting to get to the thing that everybody just jerks off uh, about, like, oh my God, ancient fucking Rome, oh my God. And like, you never actually hit it. You know, you never actually find that thing that everybody's so into. So it, it, it is odd, but anyway. Yeah. Ain't no golden age in uh, Antony and Cleopatra, I'll say that much. Those, those yeah, Romans actually, are... kind of relate to that on the more personal level. Like, I think it's like, I was just thinking while reading it there um, the other day, like, it's an interesting narrative choice that, like, you hear so much about, like, Mark Antony, both his, his supposed golden age where he was this great soldier and he did, and he did all these, like, supposed great things. And I think you do get kind of one extended description of this from one of the Romans. And then you also then hear a lot about his time of all this decadent shit that he was doing in Egypt. But like you don't, I, I think it's a pretty good choice. You don't really see either of those two things. You just kind of see him in this like sort of dissipation. Like even in the first scene there where he comes in and he's just like doing all this, oh, I love you more. No, you, no, I love you more shit with Cleopatra. It's just like, you just see him. And he's just kind of like silly and ineffectual and at worst kind mm -hmm. of erratic in the later scenes. Like you don't actually see him at either his height or his supposed downfall. You just see the aftermath of it. And I think that's actually a pretty good choice. Like, it's it's, it's an interesting one. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. There's not a lot of action in the play. Basically, all of the stuff that would be conventionally interesting kind of happens, like, off stage. Yeah. Like, the decadence mostly happens off stage. The battles happen off stage. Like, there's this whole extended scene where they make peace with the son of 
Pompey the Great, who famously was the one that tangled with Julius Caesar, Sextus Pompeius, his son. You know, there's this extended scene on the boat and uh, he has some, uh, a servant try to convince him that he should, you know, cut uh, cut the ties and sail mm. off into the Mediterranean and uh, kill uh, these three triumvirs. And he should then become the lead, you know, the leader of uh, Rome. And he says, well, you know, if you had just done that without telling me, uh, I, I could take, you know, I could I could disavow it, but also reap the benefits. But since you told me, uh, you know, I, I I can't do it. That's not honorable. It would be too dishonorable. And then he ends up getting screwed off stage. Like, I think it's between act two and three. Yeah. It's, and like, it's barely mentioned either. Mm -hmm. like yeah, like, like oh. he goes away. Lepidus uh, is suddenly arrested off stage. Both the battle where Mark Antony loses happens off stage, and then the battle where he wins happens off stage, and then the uh betray the the third or the second or third betrayal where the Egyptians go over to Octavia Octavian side that happens off stage too. You know, it, the like you don't really see the like the greatness of these men is not in what we see of them on stage. It's really more constituted through the perceptions of them that we get through their top advisors as well as their underlings. You know, it's something that is constructed uh by the common perception of them and not something that we ever really see them get to embody in some kind of full way on the stage for us the audience yeah there's uh, actually kind of an interesting um i think that thing of the reputation or the construct of that is like something that more and more kind of comes to the forefront like as a conscious thing that's discussed by the characters like uh, one of the things i i did know was like so it's act three scene one like that's kind of after this time skip where a lot of that shit happens left us is fucked over pompey's fucked over um you have one of the roman soldiers ventidius that was sent to parthia to like stop whatever rebellion was going on there and he like outright says kind of like you know, I'm not going to read it, but to paraphrase that, um, you know, like he is just a lowly soldier. He could do more for, you know, in service of Antony or of Caesar if he wanted to. He could do more, but then that would bring it, that would make them look bad. So it's not really what they want. It's like, it's in essence, that like, you know, it's whatever was best serves their reputation more so than whatever best serves like actually conquering more places, you know get you know all of this like achieving more victories and that so it's interesting so like the was like i could do more i could do more to do antonius good but to offend him and in his offense should my performance perish so i think like this kind of like which it's, it's just an interesting little detail because there's a character that only appears in this scene and never again and it's kind of one of those like little scene like brisk scenes in it that exists just to kind of let you know oh this has happened off scene off stage blah blah but like you kind of do have this interesting like delving into this which is quite a, it's it's quite a true observation like as an underling or as something beneath it but it also does kind of play into that fact of what you're kind of seeing in essence now of like you know like none of their in this play at least none of their achievements themselves really matter it just matters that they have they're believed to have achieved them and this reflects on them for better or worse throughout the play well what do you guys think in general of the strategy to elide you know all this kind of action because i actually agree with uh keith like when you said that um uh 
all we get essentially is these like public uh, perceptions, which I, I think is a very good way and a very kind of innov innovative way. Like, you know, assuming, you know, like when this play was written, I mean, just like think back to the kind of stuff that was in the ether at the time. And that, then you get a play like this where the important part is uh, the fact that they are just kind of raised uh, essentially as symbols and as, um, you know, objects of perception. Um, you know, like, I don't know to what extent uh, the public would have really understood mm -hmm. or known too much about the backstory of what's really going on in Rome at the time. Uh, I mean, like in this conversation, I'm going to like keep providing some of those like historical details. But I wonder, like, you know, without having the historical details and you're just coming across these names for the first time, you don't get to see the battles. You don't get to see this kind of you know, uh, external drama happening, and it's mostly uh, an internal drama, right? It's people kind of essentially facing off uh, against themselves because to the extent that they're not appropriately uh, facing off against themselves, that gets them into that external trouble of actually losing, right? Um, you know, for instance, like being too emotional. So like, what, what do you think about that as a writing strategy? Like, we're going to just, you know, lift everybody up to, you know, objects of perception, we're going to keep everything uh, else uh, off stage. Like, do, do you think that would would work, or do you really think like you do need some level of historical grounding here to uh, appreciate it? Honestly, like I definitely have a lot less historical grounding than either of you do. I'm not really like that knowledgeable when it comes to classics. Like, I have a vague idea of the history here, but like not you know not that much at all. Like well, we're, so, we're, we're guys, we're legally required to. Do a lot yeah, of we we got to talk Empire. about Rome. Sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry. That that's Just actually that's actually why we here. wanted you on this show, right? Because you you have to you have to bring back that other kind of energy here, right? Um, yeah. Yes. I'm honored, but yeah, I I didn't really, and to be honest, like I found maybe because of that, like I found myself more focused on that aspect, which is like very. I, it's very modern in a way. Like, I think it, it's like, this is obviously something like Shakespeare couldn't have realized. But I think like more so than his other plays, right, there is something very modern about that focus on like the, um, like reputation and public image and all that. And as well, these sort of almost like proto meta kind of like, like which he'll do in a lot of his plays, like he'll have like references to the idea of being a stage and all the world's a stage and so on. But like, it's kind of like really laid on it's it's like reference law here and also it is something that's very much part of the way the whole like story is being told um yeah it's i i don't know i found that aspect quite interesting i found myself focusing more on like i think like there's the personal aspect as well there's the fact that like not knowing all the stuff you just kind of end up seeing like somebody who's you you kind of end up just taking it for granted that okay this is what people think of this person this is what people think of Mark Anthony in it but like also that he's just kind of he he also comes across quite a pathetic figure I think throughout it like you know like not knowing any of that like I think when I was doing a bit of reading for this I I came across um I, there was a little bit actually in my book that I have where I talked about some of the performances it was just saying that you know Cleopatra is kind of one of Shakespeare's greatest like you know female roles that like many actresses would want to play whereas Mark Antony is not really like known to be this notable tragic hero maybe Keith can like weigh in on this or many knowledge but like I can kind of see why he's just somebody who's not very 
like as we see him on the page he's not very heroic he's kind of like he's quite pathetic in a lot of scenes especially later on where he's just this dissipated man and he's just this kind of and like in a way that really outweighs all of the like earlier like the stuff we get that before and after where Caesar's like oh you know it's a real shame that Antony's doing all this you know he was he's too great a man to be to be at this kind of thing and like it's just like well like we're not actually that that's completely outweighed and nearly obviated by what we're getting here Mm -hmm. So, yeah. But I don't think I don't think that's to the detriment of the play. I think it's actually very it's it's is an interesting choice, and I think it actually give it lends something more to it. Yeah, it's almost subversive. Like the person mm. who people going in are, is going to think of as the the tragic hero that you're mm. going to be the downfall of. He, I mean, he dies in the fourth act. There's a whole another like thirty minutes of the play that happens after he dies, and yeah, and it's know. really like Cleopatra then who dominates that and kind of gets like when he kills himself also he kills himself well maybe i should wait kill himself for Thomas chronologically but he does it in such a like sorry but pathetic kind of way as well because like for he basically tells one of his like soldiers to kill him he's like he just he's like i don't want to do that kills himself just not have stuff and then Kennedy's like finally like accepts okay i'm being a coward and then kills himself whereas with cleopatra it's this much more grand affair and it's like not just her killing herself to get out of this thing but it's it's very much framed in terms of her taking this form of agency over her life and how she'd be perceived as she's there like you know, thinking about how if she has to go to Rome, how she's going to be perceived, how she it's going to be framed, how she's going to have to watch this grand humiliation. Whereas, like her killing herself is this, her kind of taking charge of her her destiny, her agenda in that way. Um. So it's yeah. If there's any kind of like tragic hero in that, it is really very much her. No. Uh. Just one thing I was gonna say. I don't. The the person who Shakespeare. Uh, has with Mark Antony when he's trying to kill himself, who ends up killing himself rather than kill Mark Antony, yeah. is named Eros. Yeah. And so I, 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 I won, like... Is there a bit of, like, symbolism going I was going to say, is that, was that, in, like, was he actually there historically, or was that intended uh, symbolically on Shakespeare's part? Or, I mean, I guess intention doesn't, doesn't, doesn't matter, but... He does have a few, like, scenes with that specific Eros character where his name yeah. is kind of used in some way where it does seem to be punning on it a little bit. Like, you have the bit where he comes upon his armor and Cleopatra does it instead, and it's, like, does seem that he's kind of, he's playing off the meaning of the name a little bit, so... because Eros If is it a... wasn't made up on Shakespeare's part, it's kind of fortuitous, and it could very well have yeah. seen some name in some, in some history, and was like, oh, that's pretty good for my purposes here. Yeah, that that was all I had to to add. Well, what do you guys think of? Uh, I mean, she doesn't. Uh, I don't think she appears uh, in any substantive way in terms of like having any lines or whatever. But um, Antony's uh, wife, um, Fulvia, yeah, Fulvia. So you know, uh, she you know, in, in like historically, like in some respects, she's just kind of similar to Cleopatra in the sense mm-hmm. that. You know, here is a woman that sort of like, you know, takes uh, control in a somewhat unconventional way, conventional in terms of Egypt uh, and Fulvia's role in Rome was considered very out of the ordinary because, you know, when when Antony was not in Rome, she was uh, essentially, um, you know, doing a lot of the kind of machinations behind the scenes. Uh, She engineered uh, or helped participate in, you know, any number of... um, you know, like civil wars or, you know, getting people on, on Antony's side, right. There was this whole big thing with uh, a land acquisition where, 
you know, uh, Octavius's uh, conflict uh, with Antony was predicated partly on, okay, so what are we going to do now? Are we going to either give uh, some land up to these soldiers that are craving it? Or, uh, uh, which means we have to, like, actually confiscate it from Roman towns. Like, literally, like, uh, what ended up happening was, like, you know, physical expulsions. Um, or uh, do we simply, you know, ignore that and keep the Senate on our side, right? Because the Senate does not really want to participate uh, too much in, you know, uh, rocking the boat too much there. Well, the and, Senate uh, are also the landlords, too. So, it's yeah, a, yeah, exactly. Like, land's getting confiscated. It's probably theirs. Yeah, and Octavius ultimately decides, okay, we're going to uh, actually confiscate the land because as bad as, you know, uh, getting on the wrong side of the Senate might be, the fact is right now, you know, I need soldiers, I need men, and I need them to be happy. And uh, Fulvia is sort of like behind the scenes trying to like, like as that's about to happen, she wants to make sure that, you know, uh, it's like according to her timetable, like she wants to make sure that these confiscations and uh, the land being doled out happens when Antony's also at the same time in Rome so that Antony and Octavius can both take the credit for doing something that ultimately would be perceived as a, a popular thing to do. Um, so she's, you know, she's very critical to this. And if you like read her uh, uh, biography, she is a very interesting fellow. But at the same time, she doesn't really play uh, a substantial role uh, in in you know in the play, like in terms of having lines, but like early on when there's like the news of Fulvia's death and Antony, this is in Act One, Scene Two, right? So she she dies pretty early, um, yeah, which means yeah she she cannot actually appear in the play. Uh, this is how he characterizes it. Uh, this is on uh, around like line one thirty five. There's a great spirit gone. Thus did I desire it. What our contempts doth often hurl from us, we wish it ours again. The present pleasure, by revolution lowering, does become the opposite of itself. She's good being gone, the hand that could pluck her back that shoved her on. I must from this enchanting queen break off. Ten thousand harms more than the ills I know my idleness doth hatch. I, I, I find that an interesting um, uh, speech, partly because... First of all, the death is immediately, you know, set side by side with like, I need to, you know, I need to escape, right? I need to escape uh, uh, this this other woman, Cleopatra. Maybe he has this idea in his head that, you know, uh, I could have mistreated Fulvia in various ways because Antony was like very well known as a, as a womanizer, that kind of thing. Uh, but at the same time, she did for me the kinds of things that Cleopatra might be doing. But instead of maybe leading me to ruin like Cleopatra might... Fulvia was always looking out for my best interest. So, what, 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 what do you think about her presence, like as a, you know, as a, a kind of like ghost in in the play? Because you know, a lot of attention obviously is played on uh, uh, the presentation of Cleopatra, who she is, how she gets interpreted as being, you know, very salacious and you know, this kind of like black hole of like sucking all the energy out and destroying great men and whatnot. But um, at the same time, like there's also like a feminist reading, or if you want to go there, for someone like Fulvia, uh, that uh, I think it's really kind of like under uh, reported in the critical analyses that I saw uh, of the play. So, anybody wants to take away from that? Yeah. Um, 
to be oh, honest, like, even without, I, I find it interesting, like, just like here in the historical context there, because like, even without knowing that, I kind of like, thought it was interesting where you see at first, like, he's kind of complaining about, oh, you know, Fulvia's like doing all these things on my behalf, and it's, you know, Caesar is getting kind of starting to get annoyed, blah, 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 sending him all the message, but it was like quite interesting that, you know, like, there is the sort of commonality with Cleopatra there in terms of being, like, he's associated with these two women that are both quite have like as like their own amount of political power and their own kind of agendas in this way and then there's a kind of a contrast when you have later when he there's the marriage like kind of contract broach between mark antony and uh, caesar's sister octavia who is like you know despite like despite being actually in the play and having lines is probably less of a presence than we get from like fulvia in her the brief time she's mentioned because she's just there to be like oh she's the perfect like paragon of roman womanhood and like is virtuous and proper and caesar loves her and is angry when mark antony fucks her over but like that's it she's she's just there you know and like she's there to be kind of placed as this oh she's no cleopatra so like there is I don't know about feminist reading, but there is something like interesting being kind of like upheld there in terms of the way the play like depicts its its women. Yeah, like right. in the sense that like she's just like, you know, at least there there's something interesting or compelling enough about like the mentions of Fulvia that like there is like, you know, there it it is sticks in your head despite her never actually appearing. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's really uh I mean, you're talking when you're talking about a play from like 1607. Anytime you get into like, oh, here's my feminist reading of it, you know, you're really, you're you're potentially asking for trouble, you know, because yeah, these concepts <laughs> yeah really, we are asking for trouble. Yeah, indeed. that's not how that, and I just mean like even like in terms of co intellectual coherence, because this mm -hmm. really is like the you 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 can't i mean it's a lens that was developed afterwards obviously but also like the the way that women were viewed in antiquity was like more complex than just like oh they were pure objects of exchange or whatever you know like women could be politically uh very influential even if they couldn't necessarily occupy the the the, the big office you know like they could be mm -hmm. the one that was actually doing most of the machinations but they like they needed to have a man as the brand of their work or whatever because they couldn't be the face of the brand uh, of the brand i mean that that that's the interesting thing about like great men historically is is they're not just uh and this is true of presidents nowadays too it's not just the guy and the decisions they make it's like the whole system of advisors and confidants and patronage networks and things like that that underlie them and while women couldn't be like the face of that very often they could absolutely be the ones that were like making most of the decisions especially if the guy was you know more more feckless or less uh, uh ambitious or driven or whatever um but yeah, I I, what, like... what i, what, what I sorry, sort of get from fulvia in this context is you know she she's a paragon of romanness in that she, despite having been uh pushed to the side by her husband she still has her eye on the ball you know she is going to war with antony's cousin or antony's brother but then uh they decide to find a rapprochement and they decide to turn their weapons on on caesar for one reason or another you know so she and if antony were more of a of a paragon of romanness you would be able to appreciate that but 
he's too caught up in this like oriental orientalist web of decadence and luxury or whatever which we never see but it, it it is purported to have happened you know so that's kind of the 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 place that it serves but it is it is interesting that we never get to we don't get the melodrama of her coming up and confronting him like how dare you you know what you've done to me well so on the one hand it would be it would maybe be nice to hear from her because she sounds like an interesting character but in some ways she's more like she it sticks in your brain more like in terms of we're talking about Antony as like a somewhat pathetic and even you know whipped kind of figure perhaps you know the fact that he can so easily uh let go of someone like that and get caught up in this you know in, in these pleasures of the flesh or whatever i mean it does tell you a lot about him and she maybe she sticks more in the mind as somebody that's only alluded to and that you don't really get yeah. you know, independent access to i think as well as that just to like this is like a little bit of a tangent but regarding like the whole like issue of like feminist lens or whatever like i'm generally kind of against that but i think like this kind of, I, I think one of the problems is you can very much like, I think this is a play where there's like interesting things to talk about regarding, you know, like it's like women and men and like, you know, sexual relationships and the masculine versus the feminine. But like, I just think, look, you don't have to look at it through a feminist lens or a version this way to kind of like discuss like, or to look a lot of the ways that's done because it's very much, I think like it plays into the whole exotic, it's kind of a more broader thing. Like it very much plays into the whole exotifying of Egypt. Like nearly yeah. there's a sort of, like uh, many times throughout the Roman characters will refer to, they'll, you know, refer to Egypt and these like as being the something kind of effeminate and like in all these kind of terms, they'll refer to it like associate with Cleopatra and these feminine wiles and this kind of existence. And they'll kind of refer to Mark Antony as being somehow like effeminized during his time there in comparison to the, you know this martial roman kind of like you know masculine kind of role which is like I, I do think there's like something interesting there to look at without necessarily having to like do like you say like a kind of intellectually incoherent like feminist reading of it like well, it's more there and i think like even like just regarding you know you have like a lot of times so even in just that quote where you refer like you have anthony referring to the news of fulvis that he says like i must from this enchanting queen break off like continually you see throughout it and this kind of like escalates in act four before his death where he just refuses to take responsibility for his own actions in a way like i think there's there's an interesting thing going on where he very much he like continually like well you know and the other other character caesar also does and you know barbus does this as well and like you know refers to cleopatra's you know kind of having him whipped being this manipulator behind the scenes but he's very much making she is manipulative but he's very much making his own decisions and you get the sense he's very mm -hmm. happy to be manipulated like he very much could leave he kind of it's very easy for him to go like oh you know she's kind of forcing my hand to stay here i couldn't do anything else it's like he just it's it's just like somebody who's utterly refusing to take any responsibility for his own destiny and it is kind of like maybe a little subversive in that way like keith said like of the whole tragic hero thing because you know there can be the sense of in a lot of shakespeare's plays of like you know there being star cross over being destined but like you outright see here he's just making all the wrong choices continuously mm -hmm. and refusing to do anything different yeah. so yeah, well, and I mean, we, as you can tell, like, I'm not a fan of, of that in a person, but I think it's a very, very interesting dramatic choice. And I think it's probably why the play kind of re does resonate because it does explore or it does like represent that type of person, that, that type of character in a way that's still quite recognizable, you know? Yeah, well, but it's also probably why it's performed less, you know, because it's not exactly, you know, if you're plunking down 
50 bucks to go see Shakespeare in a theater or whatever. It's not necessarily what you expect out of, out of Shakespeare. You know, mm. you, you, you don't get that, uh, that, the, 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 that, that, that grandiosity and, and virtuousness of the, of the character and the, the beautiful speeches and whatnot. You don't get a lot of that stuff. You know, it's a lot more, um, the, the depictions of a, a lot of the characters is a lot more granular and you have to kind of follow it in order to mm. really see what he's doing. And I mean, that's from a literary perspective, very valuable, but from like a theatrical financial perspective, I could sort of see why that would maybe be like, you know, this would be last in the rotation, you know, like, okay, we have to do this one because we've done every other one of the plays in the last few years or whatever. But, you know, the in terms of like, it's a hard issue to talk about because the fact of feminism as an extant discourse means that we can talk about a character like Cleopatra in a more interesting way than like a Victorian scholar of Shakespeare who probably would read it purely in terms of Eastern feminine decadence, you know, corrupting this great man, you or know. Or even someone like T.S. Eliot, apparently, yeah, like, was one yeah, yeah, like, yeah, even, yeah, things. well, Victorian yeah. in spirit, that one, perhaps, yeah. but, uh, um, you know, we, like the fact of feminism means that because Cleopatra is an interesting character in this play, mm. you know, you really uh, the thing that's fascinating about the play is that you really never quite get a sense of her because on uh, like does she like does she even really love Mark Antony? Yeah, it's like hard it, to there's tell a lot exactly. of ambiguities there. You know, there 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 really is uh, an ambivalence and an ambiguity to her character that like because of like because feminism has been a thing and and a discourse that has been in the in academia you can talk about that but you know at the same time there is this when, when you're doing these like various ismic analyses of a writer like Shakespeare whether it's post-colonial or feminist or this or that it it, it, it it becomes like, oh, here's why Shakespeare was actually uh, doing what we would want him to do, you know, all, all along, you know, like he was like Shakespeare was secretly woke. And that's really not the the analysis, like that's not a fruitful way of reading a 500 year old or a 400 year old writer, you know, both in terms of like even just enjoying it for what it is, you know, yeah. you're, you're really getting far away from something that could be like. I mean, art should enrich your life, you know, it's not just an object of intellectual uh, abstract contemplation, it's also like it's that fusion of like the intellect and the spiritual, you know, it's something that should but like, you should I, be able to draw some just enrichment think from. It's somewhat of a trend as well and like again this is getting a little off topic but i don't think it's like relevant to maybe why something like this isn't it's just like it, like there is there probably has always been to some degree but like there is very much consciously people who like just want art to present a mirror like and you see this a lot i know i i'm sure you're familiar with like the absolutely uh questionable like you know twitter discourse around this and it's like it, it tends to be like veiled under like this moralistic think of the children thing but it's near like like this, this like discourse over oh how should you represent a character drinking alcohol in your book? Is it okay to have them getting drunk? And like this kind of well, young adult like queer discourse, but like it's not just the young, young adult, adult writers the most and readers first example of that because yeah. they have the pretext of like oh we'll think of the children. But I also see this seeping out in general to when I talk with adults about supposed literature, and it's like you know like you just you can't want to present a mirror to you that's just boring it's so solipsistic it's like why are you reading Shakespeare like why are you you know it's this 
like why would you I, I wouldn't want every I wouldn't want everyone to think like me or to be like me I read this stuff like it's a communication I want to see like okay how does he write this and represent these things in a way I would never consider to do yeah. you know well it's not even a mirror it's like when Homer Simpson is looking in the mirror and he sees himself like all muscular and he's going like dude <laughs> you know like you know because it, it, it's they don't want a mirror they want like like an like an aspirational draw, filtered, uh, like yeah. Snapchat yeah. filter or something, where you look in yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. They want a moral cool. snap. They want art to be represented through like a moral Snapchat filter. That's a great way of putting it. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, and, and I mean, you pretty much, if you want to appreciate art at all, I would say you pretty much have to, like, I guess you have to maintain a sort of peripheral awareness of modern discourse around it, but you mostly just have to unplug from it because we're. Nah, I, I, the the inter, the internet. We're we're in a real bad place with the internet, and yeah. uh, we haven't figured it out as a species yet. So until we do, uh, the 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 nature of discourse is just going to continually degrade and drag things down to. Uh, uh, I mean, for lack of a better term, the lowest common denominator of like who is the most bothered by it, who can make the most inflammatory. Uh, remarks about something and you know who the the squeaky wheel gets the grease as the cliche goes and that's you you can't let yourself as a as someone who's interested in or producing art get dragged into that because it's it's just gonna it's it's a dead end end and it's like like your consciousness of it and trying to play to it is just going to make whatever it is that you're doing or thinking worse Mm-hmm. You know, it is. I mean, you have to maintain peripheral awareness because there might be something that gets brought up that, you know, is actually interesting or worth reckoning with or whatever. But for the most part, it's just a, a posturing pissing contest. And yeah, there's and young and young adult writers, especially, but a lot of the readers, too, they're just like that's the most like psychotic and like fucked up space that i think i've ever seen yeah if you, yeah if you if you check out online. yeah if you if you check out like young adult uh twitter uh or whatnot you know it's literally just full of adults kind of you know just jockeying for status and virtue signaling about who cares about children the most i care about kids more than you do because look at your fucking book and what you wrote i would never dis- you know display this in front of children i would never you know put these uh, racist ideas and it's you know we're not even talking about racist ideas we're talking about yeah. whether or not you know mark twain should be taught um but uh it, like, to get back to fool for a second so like keith mentioned the idea of like you know t- uh, token uh, women being uh oftentimes uh you know this uh, time in history uh, tokens and um, uh, essentially just kind of like, you know, uh, uses a means to an end and with mm-hmm. Fulvia specifically, like in both in the universe and the play, as well as, you know, the real life Fulvia, uh, basically, uh, her death is used as an occasion to, you know, like to like it's for, for Antony and Octavius to make up. Right. Uh, in yeah. the play later on, like the death is like, all right, so we're going to essentially pin, um, all these civil wars and whatnot upon her, right? And we could sort of, you know, you know, we just push her to the wayside, which uh, it, it's interesting also from a psychological standpoint. So to get back to the, uh, you know, the quote that I read when he says uh, about her death, thus did I desire it. What our contempts doth often hurl from us, we wish it hours again. So it's not as if he's like unaware of what's going through his own head. It's not as if he's unaware of the fact that, you know, he keeps trying to find, you know, like ever escalating uh, means of acquiring pleasure, 
right? New people, new variety, right? That that whole famous stuff yeah. thing about um, you know, Cleopatra like presenting like varieties of yeah, uh she, you know womanhood the, experience. Other, like she never gets old, blah, you know, like yeah. in a sense. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think like there's definitely it's it's like both like to be honest, both Anthony and Cleopatra just strike as very like narcissistic people to put mm-hmm. it in a modern sense. Like, and there's something there about the way it's like, it just does make it quite compelling to read as, as theatre, because like, I, I don't know, like I've met people who live their lives in that sense where they have this like sense, oftentimes skewed of being watched and how people will react to them. And oftentimes it's a very skewed sense and they don't have an accurate idea of how people are viewing them, but it's this constant consciousness. And I feel like, you know, this is maybe, it's not you know, written with maybe the level of psychological depth that you'd get in like, you know, the 20th century onwards in terms, or 19th century onwards, even in terms of plays. But like, it does kind of hit on some kind of aspect of that kind of person or that kind of psyche or whatever that it, it does kind of make it quite interesting, like in the reasons you mentioned, like where there's this sense he's very conscious of how it's viewed, but like, at least quite conscious of his own foibles, but like the show must go on. Like, and he just kind of continues on with it. And then you have like, just the next page on after that quote, he's talking to Eno Barbas and he tells him of Fulvia's death and he gets back, uh, sir, give the gods a thankful sacrifice. And then this whole spiel about how essentially, oh, when your wife dies, like it's giving you the chance to get something new and better and uh, mm-hmm. to that. And uh, in a very flippant kind of humorous way. And like, um, so it's like this grief is crowned with consolation. Your old smock brings, brings forth a new petticoat. And indeed the tears live in an onion that should water this sorrow. So it's like in this very jovial kind of way. And that's about the most he gets. And it's sort of like, you know, this pretty much gives him, you know, he just moves on after that. It's like gives him permission to be like, okay, whatever. It's, so, it's I, it off. so, so that, that reminds me, I actually wanted to bring up that scene where they're joking about the death. And um, also, like, I, I also want to touch on, uh, you, you mentioned that there's this ambivalence about whether or not Cleopatra actually mm, yeah, loves Anton. Yeah. Because, you know, partly, I, I, that's partly interesting because that specific aspect of the play, I can imagine you know, uh, both like the, you know, older critics of the play, like if you look at writing, you know, 1700s, 1800s, whatnot, uh, they would use that as an, you know, to say like, look, you know, it's Cleopatra is that, you know, Jordan B. Peterson, feminine chaos, right? She, yeah. Re- she this represents that disorder. That exists as a symbol of what all the things that lead men astray yeah. from. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking it. before but, you, before you hopped on, like the way you know that someone like Jordan Peterson is like a fraud is that he's not pulling this play out and be mm-hmm. like, young man, he's never read it. He's never read it. You know, no fucking way would he, I can't imagine him having, especially at this point in his life, and to it's have such a the attention span. culture too, you know, yeah. it's such a, like if there, is there anything more Western culture than Shakespeare, and yet he's left and this it's, Shake, it's Shakespeare doing a play about based on Roman history. Like it's mm-hmm. like should be yeah, everything mm-hmm. these guys basically like wank to. So like, but yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, so like when when they're sort of like uh, making light of Fulvia's death, uh, when I was especially, I mean, when I was reading it, but specifically also when I was watching it in the Patrick Stewart performance, and um, you know the way that they were laughing about it. Uh, it, it made me think, okay, so like it reminded me of my response to like when I first saw the MASH uh, movie um, and basically like so like in that movie, uh, a modern viewer would probably look askance at, you know, everything that we would consider to be 
you know, um, depictions of, if not war crimes, then, you know, like, it's just like not uh, the way that you should conduct yourself, like, um, you know, uh, in the army, uh, the way that the women got treated, right, in the sense of like, they were essentially hazed in a very kind of masculine way, and like a sexist way. But at the same time, I thought, okay, well, if in the 70s, there was like less you know, opportunity to be offended by it. And people just kind of found this, you know, uh, to be like uh, just humorous. Um, at the same time, like that's not, that doesn't denigrate the film, you know, in 2024, because mm -hmm. in 2024, you're watching it and you start thinking, well, you know what? It doesn't seem to me like these people are being presented like very well, even if in the 70s, people might've been laughing at it. Yeah, Here, there might still, still be... giving you a type of person and a type yeah, of exactly. reaction that like it or not exists. Exactly. Well, it's, it's, it's a type of person. It's also a meta commentary on just kind of like the American army. Like, what the fuck are you doing in Vietnam to yeah, begin with? Actually, yeah, what, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What, what is this like? What is this nonsense that you're getting up to? You know, uh, the you know characters like doing these like surgeries in places where they're not supposed to be um, and not getting in trouble because like they have like a, a high enough reputation or they know the right people. Now, same thing. It struck me like when I was watching watching uh, 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 the Patrick Stewart performance where it's like we get a little like uncomfortable watching it but at the same time whatever Shakespeare might have felt you know uh, if there was like more to it than just like pure humor it's, it, it speaks to you know the greatness of a work of art where like you know years and years later you have a very different response and still the people yeah. within it are being characterized still they're being contextualized by specifically these kinds of scenes like th did you guys notice like any of this as you were reading it yeah i think it's like you get given enough like richness it's like you know having like a fake like cubic zirconia but it's placed in a solid gold like ring or something so like it's kind mm -hmm. of redeemed by the i don't know but like you know it's kind of like it's redeemed by the context because like you're given enough there that you can it, rather than it being like the whole place just an example of this sort of like rather like flimsy like shallow sort of view of the world you can instead say no it's like actually presenting like a full character who just happens to have these sort of shitty views of the world i think like a lot of like the ambiguity or a lot of like the scenes of cleopatra being honestly kind of fickle and impetuous and like in a lot of ways she does represent or play out a certain like types of like female characteristics that like you know you do like the jordan P peterson reference of like the, the feminine chaos yeah she does kind of embody that but at the same time it's like like when you do read some of the scenes so like i'm looking now as just i mean here you have like the next scene after that you have cleopatra and her handmaidens and she's there kind of looking for anthony and then she's like right well she says see where he is who's with him what he does i did not send you if you find him sad say on dance if in mirth report that i am sudden sick quick and return and then you have this little exchange between her and charmian one of her handmaidens who appears in it and who's saying kind of um madam methinks if you did love him dearly you do not hold the method to enforce the like from him cleopatra what should i what should i do and do not in each thing give him way cross him in nothing and Cleopatra replies it, thou teachest like a fool the way to lose him. So it's kind of, it is very much this sort of like, it, it's the kind of shit that like, yes, it is very much like a stereotype that like of kind of feminine manipulation and stuff like that. But like, you can say it's not true to some degree that like there aren't women who play these sorts of games and that there's it's some the classic truth in that negging, kind of thing. as they say. Yeah. 
Wow. This was classic pickup artistry, you know. You got yeah, no, yeah, it really is. I mean, it's basically like you could have this exchange as an example of the kind of stuff like red pill guides do. You don't want to, you know, where they're like, don't be a like Cleopatra's basically like, don't be a simp, don't do all this shit. You know, you gotta fucking like play, you know, play around a bit. And it's just it, it's a true thing about like human psychology, though, in a way. You know, it's kind of, and I I, I think because of that, it does. And it's something that's true enough in terms of like there are people who act this way. There are people who like Cleopatra is, you know, she's impetuous and fickle, but she's not presented as someone who's stupid. She's quite willful. She's quite in moments like that, that like conscious of like how to wield her power, especially then with, when you have these times of ambiguity or of her like basically deciding to take the sort of um, sneaky deal that she's offered by Caesar to betray Antony. And it's just sort of there's enough there to say that she's very conscious of what she's doing. Like she's very like, you know, it, and it is a sort of, you know, she is a woman who had an uncommon amount of power at the time and it is a sort of, I guess you could argue feminine power that like, regardless of whether the real Cleopatra wielded that or not, like I've seen, I've read some stuff talking about how she wasn't this like, like seductress, sexy type that she's often presented in pop culture. But I mean, like, I'm sure she had to have been aware of like how she would have been viewed as a woman and how that's going to affect things and how maybe like to wield certain things like that in certain ways, even if she didn't do it to the extent that a portrayal like this shows. Yeah, well, I mean, she fucked the, the most powerful men in Rome two times in a row, you know? I mean, there yeah. has to have been some kind of uh, co consciousness on her part of, like, sexuality as, like, a political weapon that she had access to. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it seems to me, like, the, the you know, the more that you read about Cleopatra's life, like, it definitely seems like the the whole, like, sexual angle, like, yeah, you know, she has a son by Julius Caesar, she has three sons by Antony. Uh, a lot, you know, a lot of it just struck me as... Okay, so this is a female ruler. Uh, she, you know, um, you know, she probably like, cultivated a sense of charisma and whatnot. There was like, you know, this infamous thing where she wasn't considered very beautiful, but she was just considered very personable, very charismatic, uh, you know, very witty, that sort of thing. But you know, using sex essentially as a means of survival, right? It's just a means of, um, you know, whereas like men, they don't, you know, they don't have to necessarily think of those terms. And to get back to the idea of like. You know, Jordan Peterson. Well, I mean, it's more thing for a man like at least for straight men, even if you wanted to, it's not yeah. viable for you. Yeah, exactly. It's not so even like, like I mean, just think <laughs> more of, so, you know, like historically, what vulnerable of a position she was in. You know, I mean, she mm -hmm. is still technically the monarch of Egypt, but Egypt is slowly over time having any sense of autonomy like chipped away at it by mm -hmm. the increasing centralizing power of Rome, and so to the extent that she has any position at all it's by entangling herself with these powerful men of rome and having sons by them you know mm -hmm. it's and so the it's very uh i mean that's not something that shakespeare really gets into overtly but if you were you know somebody who was kind of familiar with the history of this that's certainly something that you would have to think about you know like uh, it, what, what else was she gonna do you know, she doesn't have an army that can stand up against the Roman army. She does. She doesn't. They don't really. She doesn't really have anything other than trying to, you know, various social mechanisms to keep in favor of the the uh, of the powerful men that she is functionally in the thrall of. You know, and to yeah. to get back to the idea of like you know, uh, red pill and Jordan B. Peterson fraud. Uh, a lot of it, like it, it just strikes me also how. 
Um, you know, if, if you're going to make these kinds of arguments about uh, feminine wiles and whatnot, uh, a lot of it just strikes me as just kind of, um, you know, it's a classical thing of like, you know, what we think of as conservatism is not really that anymore, right? It's like a very weird form of right-wing extremism that's not even classically, you know, psychologically conservative. Like, if you have like feminine wiles and you fall prey to them, well, I mean, that's on you as a man, isn't it, right? Why, why mm -hmm. are you not, you know, why are you, because Anthony obviously he knows what's going on, uh, but he still gives into it. Um, I remember everyone, like all the Romans basically mock him mercilessly for this. Like, yeah, exactly. Just talk and, about like what, it, like how whipped he is and like how pathetic it is as well. Yeah, for, happened, like, happened to Pompey the Great too. He was he Pompey the Great was married to Julius Caesar's uh, daughter Julia, and apparently they had a rather loving relationship, uh, mm -hmm. which was unusual for like like basically in Rome, if you were a powerful person. You had a wife that you did not give a shit about, and then you had like a mistress or some sort of uh, twink off on the side that was the person that you actually, uh, you know, had some sort of you know more powerful uh, romantic uh, attachment to. But to 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 publicly be in love with somebody that you were attached to was like considered rather humiliating, you know. And that's that 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 is an interesting like older form of right wing, which is like like you as a man. Like you're like being attached to a woman at all in public where we can see it like that. That's pretty sus, man. You know, that's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you should really want to spend like 98% of your time with the boys you know doing masculine stuff like, i i i, I mean honest stuff. honestly like reading some of this stuff now i get well i mean i read it back then but it didn't quite hit me then but uh rereading it now and just like thinking back to my life i remember one time like dating dating a woman that uh like i remember like the summer passed and i was thinking like fuck like the whole summer i barely did any reading i barely i wasn't really writing at the time but like i barely did any reading i barely did anything and like two months passed and i'm going back to college and what the hell did I get out of it? Like, I'm so disgusted with myself. I need to stop seeing her. You know, like it was like that kind of thing. But like, the, the, but the disgust, the disgust with myself, it was not like, oh, this fucking like, you know, like she's just trying to like get like, no, it's like you were supposed to be doing this. You were supposed to be reading. You were supposed to be, you know, like spending the summer wisely because you, you don't like to be in classes and you had these two months where you could do it. And instead you fell into this hellhole of, um, you know, delirium and, uh, you know, uh, you know, kind of like, just like, uh, like, like self titillation, right? It's, it's pointless. And that, that, yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's the thing Like, you're, you're supposed to be aware of that on your own. Like when, when I see anything like about like, feminine walls not being pushed, it's like, you're such a fucking pussy. Like, just shut up. You, like, you, you should be the one controlling yourself. Like, but like um, just to bring it back like actually to like to the play like i think there's like an interesting thing aspect that ties into that that i was thinking where it is sort of like uh it's interesting because it is like a love plot but they're both two middle-aged people if you like just even going by like a more conservative estimate of their ages like mark antony is presented in as being older in years because like there's continual references to like to like octavius caesar as being like a boy and you know mm -hmm. of like barely mm -hmm. having a beard yet and all these kinds of things in contrast to him and then like you know like on cleopatra's part like then there's these references to her being still young you know assume be a teenager or a young woman when like she seduced uh julius caesar so you'd assume now like enough time as a couple of decades maybe have passed like she's probably going to be what in her 40s he's in his 50s or so and it's like it it does add an interesting aspect i feel like 
Um, I haven't watched any adaptations because I couldn't find anyone's like online that were of decent quality to like actually watch. But it seems like there's been at least some that have kind of leaned into that quality of it being like uh, sort of this, you know, rather than being like it, it does add something too because you can't even kind of like you're saying your example like chalk it down to like oh you're young you're you know we're we've all been in college or young and you have like those kind of first love experiences supposed to grow out of it. But I think there's this like added interest in this whole plot about the fact that they're like both two older people, they have a history, they have all this behind them. And like, they're still kind of acting in this very puppy love kind of way. Um, David Brooks. Hmm? <laughs> There's this conser conservative uh, op-ed writer here in America named David Brooks, who very famously uh, left his wife and married like a young research assistant. And he, uh, wrote this book called The Second Mountain, which uh, was apparently overflowing with him uh, being like a, a, you know, a 50, 60 something guy who has uh, gloriously rediscovered sex and is talking about love and, and, and you know, passion and all that kind of I mean, of that's, that's so honestly like some of the scenes in this, like you could, depending on like clever casting choices, you could very easily, that's the, exactly the impression you'd give off from it. Like, mm -hmm. and it kind of yeah. does add some, because it's one thing to have this sort of like, you know, little games they're playing between them and, you know, all this, like when you imagine it being as young people, but like kind of thinking of people in their 40s or 50s acting this way, it really gives a different impression, like, I gotta say. Like, it does, <laughs> well, like, well, like we, it or not, not to say, like, they're not, you're not allowed to have your puppy love bullshit, but, like, when you add in the aspect of the irresponsibility of it all, it kind of just... Yeah, well, but yeah. when you see, I mean, you know, I think this aspect is sometimes overstated when critics talk about it, but there is a certain, like, austerity and matter-of-factness to the scenes that take place in Rome, you know? Yeah. You yeah. don't get a sense that there's a lot of room for passion. So, I mean, this might be the the first time in his life that he's been exposed to this kind of, like, passionate uh, life of the senses as opposed to the life of brutality and of the mind or whatever, you know? Like, he's he's having this very teenage kind of experience as an older guy, you know, because it yeah. just wasn't something that he had access to in his, in his younger years so i mean that is just you know it's 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 interesting to think about and that's i think also to some extent like the the point of the play is like you know this is really something that you should have gotten out of your yeah. system when you were a younger dude like but, but he never did he like never did adds, his entire life yeah. was just that right he just kept yeah. accumulating new lovers new this new that like he that's the thing that his problem was that he, he he's incapable of getting out of the system you know what i mean yeah, yeah, and it's just like, it, it's also like adds on like the Cleopatra side of things. I think like it's that aspect that adds this like frisson of like ambiguity and ambivalence to her character too, because it's not like she's this, like at one point, um, I can't have it somewhere here. I can't, I think it's in act three or something. She's there talking about her previous affairs with Julius Caesar and I think with Pompey, or Pompey, the, his son or something I believe is Pompey anyways, he's just referred to in the play. And like he, like she's talking about her affairs and she's like explicitly contrasting this with the supposed genuine love she now has with Mark Antony and that like you know that these were these things of her learning how to I guess manipulate learning how to seduce in this way but this is different somehow you know well it's um, funny so I feel like this it, it adds to that though because there is this ambiguity especially with the way how we very consciously see her manipulating him like on yeah. the in te the text and we 
also then see her how quick she is to like you know turn you know turn tail when it's in favor to her like and curry favor with the romans so like it does kind of offer it's a bit different than if maybe like this this was like you know a 20 year old cleopatra like this is like a middle-aged woman who's very con like knows how to play with her sexuality knows how to like knows her effect on men and knows what to do with that and it does give it it adds to that ambiguity there and i think it adds it gives our character a little more depth, I think, and gives an actress more to play with than you would have if, yeah. you know. Well, well the interesting thing is because so much of this is basically a survival strategy on her part, it's kind of open, like, how much of this is even conscious on her part? Because at mm -hmm. one point early on, she talks about, uh, oh, you know, Julius Caesar, I never loved him like this. And one of her handmaids yeah. off to the side is like, well, you weren't saying that back then. And she's like, yeah, Shut yeah. Up. And then at some point in the middle of the play, she's like, huh, I guess I was kind of, eh, I was kind of talking shit about Caesar more than I should have, huh? You know, like there is like, I think a it's like that's in like the next like scene or something as well. Like, yeah, it's at like some not... point she has like a moment of self awareness, like, you know, but that, but then that kind of, you know, falls away, you know, and you never even know, like, who is making what decision in this play. Like, it's not entirely clear to me that, like, Fulvia's rebellion against Octavius, that Antony was even in on it, you know, like, he might yeah. have genuinely had nothing to do with it. And then when the Egyptians turn on Antony near the end, like did cleopatra actually yeah, call that's, them to do like, that that's or was that things... an under was that like an underling that had you know turned tail it is it's left see? very and i think that's actually like there's a lot of ambiguities like that that are like you yeah. know they, like the, I, that's one of the details with the egyptians i have to go back and look at it a second i'm like wait hang on and it's like it is left very unclear um because yeah. of her reaction then where you know, you can have, you could play it both ways, depending on, I think like this is another one of the things compared to some of Shakespeare's plays, there's a lot of, um, now I, I don't know a lot about directing or the process, but I feel like there's a lot of things where you're left a certain amount of creative control as a director to kind of play it, you know, you could say to your Cleopatra, right, to, like Cleopatra was totally in on this, and then that, like, that would lead you then to play the scenes where she decides to manipulate him, to hide in the monument, to pretend she died, in a very different way than if you kind of were to decide to play as it's her underling betraying her, because later she does have her treasure betray her essentially in front of the Romans so you could there's like validity of playing it that way either but like either mm -hmm. way it's going to like offer a very different view of the character there's a lot of and like it would kind of work either way which is like something I don't think you get that in like a lot of like it's been a while now since I've read like a lot of others my went on my big Shakespeare binge and read kind of a lot of stuff but like I don't think that sort of like open-endedness is something you get so much in a lot of this place well so you get open-endedness with certain performative aspects like if you're yeah. doing hamlet you know if you're playing hamlet you know is he like how crazy is he you know how much yeah of but i feel like that doesn't have to... such a massive bearing yeah. on like, yeah no, no well and, and things, yeah well, this play has a lot of that too like uh what one scene we haven't even talked about but i actually think is aesthetically like i could see this being one of the first things that gets cut but i it, it, aesthetically it's one of the more fascinating parts of the play there's this scene of all the soldiers. There's none of the main characters, anybody around. The All the soldiers are just sitting around in camp. And suddenly there's like this noise that starts playing that none of them can identify. Oh, yeah. And none of them has any idea what it is. And one of them's like, well, I guess that's Hercules uh, abandoning Antony's cause or whatever. But it's like, it's not, I mean, the, the thing that he, in the description, it says, 
houseboys, which is an old timey term for oboes. So they're just sitting around, you know, this military camp and suddenly there's just this sound of, uh, of uh, you could use oboes, but it could be, I mean, you could, if you were performing it, you could do anything with that. And what exactly that means I mean, you get one person's interpretation of it, but it's this w weird dip into like almost magical uh, or like fantastic, a fantastical element that kind of comes out of nowhere and is not really commented on again. And yet I, it, it, when I was reading it this time, it really had like a, uh, it, it stuck out to me as like aesthetically, at least like somewhat important because the, the, the whole theme of the play is basic or not, not theme like motif or construction or whatever is that you really don't get your bearings and kind of understand w w what is happening and who is doing what why at a lot of yeah points. it's like and, that, yeah. and i feel like that aspect like that scene is an interesting one as well and i i just think it's that aspect that actually does make it oddly modern because like yeah like i mean not to say that like people in shakespeare's time wouldn't have been like that this wasn't something that was a facet of how people interact with each other, how they interpreted, you know, certain political decisions or whatever. But like, you know, nowadays we're like so hyper conscious of like performing and of like reputation and of the difference between the image one projects versus the act, the actual and this kind of, you know, obviously there's a social media aspect that is like, basically I'm probably at the upper end of the generation where like people are just constantly like swimming in this like basically you have your persona and you have your actual self and there's this waviness like haziness between the two and it's just like I do think like it is you know it maybe doesn't go about or explore a theme in a way that a modern writer would but it like it's it's, it's obviously very con as conscious or of, as well, deliberate and playing around with that idea as somebody of Shakespeare's time probably could have been and maybe that's partly why it didn't get as popular as well. Maybe like it's due for a bit of a renaissance because yeah. I think that just stood out to me a lot. Like, I mean, there's a lot you can talk about there in terms of like yeah. modern politics and that, like that aspect of it as well. Like the smoke and mirrors kind of part of it. Well, like, it kind of is like, how a modern major. writer would approach it though, because the last act of the play is basically Cleopatra wrestling with herself. Like, okay, I've been captured and I've been beaten. How am I going to play this? You yeah, know, and, and, it, I, and she's like outright. Like, I'd actually get this and read this because it's one of the things I did note that was like she has this kind of thing being conscious of how she's going to be viewed by the world and viewed when like you know Caesar's talking to her about like bringing her to Rome and she's then talked handmaids that so you have him nay tis most certain era saucy lictors will patch at us like strumpets and scald rhymers ballad us out of tune the quick medians extemporally will stage us and present our alexandrian revels antony shall be brought drunken forth and i shall see some squeaking cleopatra boy my greatness in the posture of a whore and like it's kind of like it, it's it is quite met in the sense that like she would have been played when this is initially done by some like boy actress but like it's also like it also is quite like a literal like she's very conscious it, it is that almost narcissism coming out which is i feel like is quite a modern thing of like how how can i frame this how can i spin this how is this going to be viewed and it's like it's not she she kind of like up until that point she's like sort of thinking how can i deal with this how can i try and get this in my favor and it's only when she realizes she won't be able to spin it in a way that like adds to her myth adds to any of this that she gives up entirely and it's just like then when she decides to kill herself it's done in this very grand kind of way like i have immortal longings in me and it's you know it, it's her it's her final act of taking control of the narrative and yeah well and then she ends up taking her own life and 
you know, given the the sort of sexuality and innuendo of the whole thing, it's, it, yeah. it, I mean, it's not for nothing that it's, you know, it's a, a phallic sort of thing with which she takes her own life and that is like enveloping her on her breasts, running down her arm, you know, and uh, also the... The, the and yet there's also that duality there though because it, yeah I mean this was a Christian society in which this is being written and so the the snake would be associated with the fall you know with the with with, with feminine weakness and whatnot and yet here she is kind of reclaiming it as a way to sort of take this last little bit of her destiny that she has uh, some sort of choice about into her own hands and go out on her own terms instead of being I mean you have to imagine like. Just practically speaking, the, the would there be anything more humiliating than being like someone who was great in their own society and then you're marched in front of these like drunken, like awful Romans, like this horrible, like fire, the fireplace smoke going everywhere, choked city and like trash in the streets everywhere, like not you know and, and the, 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 that is like a common uh it's a the pretty common motif in the play which i i find because uh, i mean we we have like the ages of the people so cleopatra dies at age 39 so you know she's around she's a 39 here uh we have anthony who is uh, at this point i believe in his 40s um is he in his 40s or did he die at 53 well it was one of those the point is right he's uh he's like well into middle age and uh, one of the kind of like uh, fascinating aspects is like all characters, Cleopatra as well as Anthony, they're, they're both seem to be like very concerned with not only like uh, what they're going to be perceived with, uh, perceived as uh, publicly, you know, after their deaths, which um, actually I, I find it a, 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 a breath of fresh air because it seems like when we look at, you know, modern politicians, nobody's at all thinking about how are people going to perceive what I did now in the future when it's like, I don't have my mm -hmm. accomplices with me. I don't have my flunkies with me. I just have literally history and time leveling everything, you know, like that, that's one of the reasons why I was like, kind of just shocked how like Trump, like he didn't give a shit about doing anything well. You know, like he he was like in a unique position to you know try something, and he did absolutely he did almost nothing. And here they are; they're they're very concerned about this. And sometimes Antony, um, like one time he he gets angry when he hears about uh, the words of uh, uh, Octavius, and he says something like, "I'm angry over the fact that he's that he's so like he's he, he's he's criticizing me or something uh, with uh, or, or rather he's interpreting me." with the way that I am as opposed to how I, who I was, right? He, it's almost as if like he's aware that he has these like past glories that he's never going to get back. Um, later on, there's this, um, let me see if I could find as I'm talking about it, but like, you know, like, like it chance. It's the start of uh, act four. I know the part you mean. Yeah. Th yeah. So this, yeah, this is when he's uh, uh, getting angry and he just, you know, he just feels himself like, I, you know, I deserve more in the same way that Cleopatra, you know, says, you know, give me uh, my, my robes and give me my crown. I have immortal longings in me. You know, it's like immortal longings for what? Like in, in death, right? Like what, whatever that you did up until this point, that's all that you can do. You have these final moments, you know, make sure that uh, whatever the perception is, is going to be in some ways positive, right? You need to have done something constructive in your life. It's not going to be enough for the propaganda to do it for you. And, and also the idea of like chance, right? Um, this this uh, a sense of uh, 
you know, like things are, are very much out of our control. I mean, it's a very, it's a very common, you know, like a Greek tragedy trope, right? This idea of you can't uh, fight against destiny. You can't fight against whatever that is coming, right? Oedipus, uh, Rex, obviously, right? You, you try to like avoid uh, the prophecies and instead you get further and further enmeshed in these prophecies. Um, uh, so like Act 5, Scene 2, I think it is, let me see, uh, where uh, basically... Uh, they're they're talking about chance in a way that I think is very very modern. Um, what is line one forty five or so? Um, yeah. So Caesar says, "Take to you no hard thoughts. The record of what injuries you did us." Meaning, he, so C Caesar speaking to Cleopatra, right? When uh, she's wondering, like, "Am I going to get killed?" or like, "What's going to happen to me?" Uh, Take to you no hard thoughts. The record of what injuries you did to us, though written in our flesh. We shall remember as things but done by chance. And in many respects, like if you think about it, when you get to a high enough level of either like, you know, military or political power, you know, everybody is at that point pretty much reacting, um, you know, th they are reacting to kind of like almost like material reality at that point, right? Where uh, there, there, it's just like pure cause and effect, right? When nation states go to war, uh, there's like a pure kind of cause and effect. There's just a sense of like, you know, uh, whether it's rational or irrational, the perception is, well, it's rational for me to feel, you know, defensive here. So we need to, you know, we need to commit a genocide. We need to do this. We need to do that. And here it's almost as if like Caesar is, he's kind of like almost like mature enough where he's he's able to recognize that at a high level, this is how politics and militaries are. No hard feelings. This is simply how, you know, things play out. Caesar is sort of the agent of fortune in this play. I mean, everybody keeps, you I think they say early made. on, you, you know, it, it, when it comes to my skill versus his good fortune, my skill is going to lose. I think Anthony says something to that effect early on. And it's, it's an interesting way to frame it because ultimately, I mean, this is Octavius Caesar, you know, it's fucking Augustus. Like he's one mm -hmm. of the most skilled uh politicians and leaders that rome would ever have in its entire history you know i mean he basically built a system that lasted you know almost 200 uh, years after him before the crisis of the third century and the uh uh you know the various civil wars that happened in that time the temporary breakup of the empire and then it's re the replacement of the principate with the dominate under diocletian like uh, I, so it's interesting that someone who is like objectively as skilled as everybody like in history ever except for maybe his uh patriarch julius caesar at uh occupying a high seat of power and basically playing the playing the keys of power perfectly is here since i guess maybe since he's a young boy you know he still is kind of finding his footing or whatever it's just he he's an instruments uh of chance and yet at the same time like it's not really chance because like anthony you're fucking around like you have land dominance and you decide to fight him at sea because he like basically called you a pussy if you don't it's an like, ego yeah it's you know like, like, like that's why i, I do think there is yeah, something yeah, and yeah, yeah it's not like it is not there is something very like midlife crisis-esque <laughs> like yeah. the whole thing like that's very anachronistic but like it does you can't have kind of thinking a bit reading it in the 21st century like it's i don't know you do have this that like sense kind of though more seriously of like you know like 
I, I guess it's just kind of that decadence and somebody being overtaken. Somebody's had their like their better day on them and now they're, you know, taken. It's just like, you know, and that's just kind of comes out of fortune and luck and chance and the way of the world more so because like it, it's bound to, you know, like regardless of the t- specific talents of Octavius, like it's, there's going to be somebody there to overtake him because he's just, he, his days are gone. Like, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and also just, you know, the, it, 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 it is just interesting how like char- every character both like is and is not what they say they are you know mm-hmm. the, the, there is just yeah. this real ambiguity yeah. and, and and ambivalence that basically everybody I, I mean it I, I I also just think I agree that the, in some ways this does feel the most modern of like any Shakespeare play that I can think of which is not to say that it's the best but it's sort of like when you watch a Hitchcock movie from like the seventies, where it's like, huh, here's kind of maybe what he would have done if he'd been born a little bit later, and you know, it's it's not bad. It's actually quite interesting. It's yeah. got some, you know some good parts. You know, I probably uh, well, it's so- like reading Shakespeare's sonnets, and I can't think of the numbers off the top of my head, but there's some that like aren't necessarily his best ones, but they do have a weirdly more modern feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um. I can't like unfortunately I can't think of numbers. It's been a while since I read them, but like I think I do think yeah, it's that kind of effect really. And th- th- there's this uh, an Act Five scene too. Like speaking of all the kind of you know dreams of the past, dreams of the future. Um, uh, when Cleopatra tells the Della Bella, uh, "No matter, sir, what ha- I have heard or known, you laugh when boys or women tell their dreams. Is it not your trick?" Isn't that such a like modern, modern, modern line, right? Yeah. You laugh when boys or women tell their dreams, and you know, boys and women being put, you know, essentially in the same category here. Um, but you know, the irony being, of course, that you know, Anthony probably has all these dreams, and if not dreams, then at least fantasies of the past, right? And he would be in that same uh, uh, category, right? Perhaps the only one that might not be in this category is somebody like uh, like an Octavius. Um, you know, but it, like the, the play is full of these kinds of uh, lines. And I, I thought that act uh, three ends perfectly. So this is like right at the end of uh, scene 13, when Inabarbus uh, tells about Anthony, who's now has his, like second wind and he wants to go to war. He says, now he'll outstare the lightning. Speaking of Anthony, to be furious is to be frighted out of fear. And in that mood, the dove will peck the estridge and I see still a diminution of our captain's brain restores his heart. When valor preys on reason, it eats the sword it fights with. I will seek some way to leave him. Right, unexpected final line. Um, and you know this this whole idea of uh, uh, emotion versus uh, uh, the intellect. Okay, so I think it's time to transition to the patron show, and in the patron show that is. Uh, um, patreon.com slash automachination uh, or the YouTube uh, uh, membership program you get access to that as well and we're going to finish uh, discussing Antony and Cleopatra we're going to discuss the character of Enobarbus we're going to, um, is that, am I pronouncing his name correctly? Yes. Enobarbus yeah Enobarbus, uh, for some reason I thought uh, there was a D in there but anyway, um, we're going to discuss him as a character, uh, I want uh, actually Laura to uh, flesh out what she said earlier about the 
um, whole thing about uh, it's not exactly clear, right? It's it's a very ambivalent, right, in terms of uh, uh, is Cleopatra in fact in love with Antony? Because I think uh, depending on how you break break that question down, um, it, it's kind of interesting how it might be interpreted over the centuries up until the modern day. And of course, right, any uh, patron show, we're going to be discussing everything else that might be on our minds, whether it's current events or literature that we're reading, things that we're watching, so on and so forth. So for everybody that has watch watched thus far, thank you for being a viewer. And for the patrons, the patron show begins now.